I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know, journalists, insiders, all of whom can break down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Listen now. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today's episode is about student debt forgiveness. The big, bold, beloved, despised, possibly midterm clinching and possibly illegal new policy from the Biden administration, which will forgive up to $20,000 of student loans for all but the richest student debtors. So one thing that I try to do in most of these episodes is to try to find ways to express complicated ideas in a simple way. And I want to begin today's episode with a bit of a confession, Um, not quite an apology, but a confession, which is that I don't think I know how to do that with this issue. I am incredibly torn about the substance and the wisdom of this policy of student loan forgiveness. And I'm trying to hold several thoughts in my head at the same time. Thought number one is that the level of student debt in America represents a massive and possibly inherently immoral policy mistake, and that there's a strong moral case to be made that we should reduce outstanding student debt to help people who went to college, who did the right thing, move on with their lives. Thought number two is that lots of Americans are suffering from lots of problems, and maybe it's kind of nakedly transactional for Democrats to craft a debt relief plan for student loan holders who represent just one-seventh of the country that is mostly middle class or on their way to becoming middle class. This is not a policy that does the most for those with the least. Now, thought number three, though, is that, well, politics is transactional. Biden promised to do something like this. Democrats elected him, and now he's doing what he promised. Thought number four is that, yes, he is upholding a promise, but he's not fixing a system. 
Student debt is a chronic problem, a chronic problem, and devising a one-off solution to an acknowledged chronic problem is kind of weird. Like when someone has a back problem, you devise a course of treatment. You don't write a one-week prescription for painkillers and say, good luck to you. Thought number five is that maybe it's okay to have a one-off prescription in this case because student debt was, in fact, statistically, an unusually big problem for members of my generation, millennials, and younger members of Generation X who graduated into an economy in the late 2000s, early 2010s that was really, really sick, that had very little demand, that had high unemployment. And that happens to be when student debt on an annual basis peaked. It's actually been declining since 2011. So maybe the one-off nature of this policy is totally moral. And then thought number six is that maybe I don't have any standing to deeply criticize this policy. And maybe it's fundamentally immoral for me who has no student debt to criticize a policy that brings everyone else's student debt figure closer to mine. Last year, I called this policy, student debt forgiveness, a B minus idea in a C plus world. I think that's still pretty much right. And joining me today in my state of tortured ambivalence is Atlantic writer Jerusalem Demsis. Together, we walk through the best case for and against this policy. We discuss and occasionally debate the economics, the morality, and the politics of student loan forgiveness. If you have any feedback for this episode or ideas for future episodes, please email me at plainenglish at spotify.com. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Jerusalem Demsis, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Derek. Thanks for having me. Since Joe Biden announced his plan to forgive up to $20,000 of student loans for tens of millions of households, I've been pretty overwhelmed by the chaos of the debate over this law. And before sitting down to do this podcast, I wanted to figure out, like, why is this debate in particular so overwhelming and nonsensical? And I think it's because there isn't just one debate happening here. There's at least five different debates about this policy that are pretending to be talking to each other. You've got people debating economic justice, racial injustice, politics, the consumer economy, inflation, education financing. So what I thought we would do here is rather than have a scrum where we pretend to talk about all these things at once, we break them down into their constituent categories and talk about them one by one. So let's start first with student loan forgiveness and the case for economic justice. Now here, I've heard two broad classes of arguments. On the one hand, I hear people who say, look, student debt is morally indecent. No other country has saddled a generation of college graduates with debt like this for committing the sin of getting a college education. But then there's this other group that says, well, you know, debt is a contract. This was a contract that was taken on knowingly. And it happens to be held, all the student debt, by Americans who overall are roughly middle class or have average to above average incomes. So I wonder, do you think one side has the clear advantage here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that both those arguments certainly are being made a lot. And I think that they're both kind of wrong in where they're coming from, because I, I don't think it's useful to kind of talk about, you know, the moral valence of debt in the abstract um, and like whether or not it's it's fair or whatever. I, I think the question is, does this debt allow people to make their lives better or not? Right. So, you know, I uh, took out, uh, I think, roughly thirty thousand dollars in student loans to go to undergrad. Um, that's all federal debt. And my parents did not have the money to pay directly for my tuition. And so I was able to go to school and then I was able to get a job that was good enough to pay um, pay down that debt. And so for me, the bet really pays off, right? And then there are some people for whom that doesn't happen. They Either they don't get a job that help lets them do so. Um, maybe they don't finish college and so they don't get the benefits of an increased wage premium that comes with a college education a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, I think the real question here is like not, oh, does debt in the abstract, is that good or bad? But like, there's a reason we're talking about student loan debt and we're not talking about forgiving a bunch of people's mortgage debt, right? Because it's broadly accepted within the United States that taking on mortgage debt is, of course, a great bet. You're getting to leverage a ton of money that you don't actually have in order to make a uh, to pay for something that you definitely need regardless. You have to have shelter. And so people don't talk about forgiving mortgage debt in the same way. So I think the big question here is just, is this bet actually paying off for most people? Could someone make the argument that we already do use federal policy to preference mortgage debt because we have a mortgage interest deduction in the federal tax code. But on the other hand, with student debt, we don't have similar privileges in the tax code. We don't allow student debt to be written off in bankruptcy. That while it's useful to build human capital and move people, hopefully, between classes, it's not treated the same way that other debt is treated. And that maybe this policy is a way to rectify that historical injustice that finally now we are treating student debt a little bit more nicely like we treat other debt. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the weird things with um, policy debates when people talk about like kind of balancing instead of like fixing the actual problem. Like, yeah, student debt should be able to discharge during bankruptcy. And like, we shouldn't just like try to make student debt a little bit better in some random way. You should just fix the actual problem you've identified, which is that if you are bankrupt, you definitionally didn't probably get a good, you didn't get the good um, uh, benefits that come with a college wage premium, that you were clearly not living the economically productive life that you were promised after you went to school. And so you should just allow people to discharge the debt during bankruptcy. I think it's it's very odd. And I think this is like a kind of a larger problem we have um, within within politics is when people feel like the actual problem is too difficult to solve or there's like some political barrier in the way of solving that problem. They kind of like nibble around the edges in weird ways in order to kind of de- attack the problem. And often it's to satisfy some constituency or because they actually do feel bad about the, the problem that exists. But in doing so, they end up pursuing policy aims that don't actually address the core um, harm that's being perpetrated on a population. One of the reasons that I struggle with this policy so much and why, as I mentioned at the open, I feel like it's a C-plus policy for a C-plus world is that I think there is a accurate diagnosis here that the way that we finance public education in this country is really messed up and that there's simply too much student debt and that there are reasons why there's too much student debt. We don't have enough local state financing of public institutions and that as a result, that decline in local and state financing is put on the backs of families and students. I think it's a really useful diagnosis. What's weird about this prescription is that we've identified a chronic problem for Americans and as a prescription, applied a one-off, means-tested cash transfer 
we don't do this with other problems in America, at least typically or ideally. Like if we say, you know, raising a child in America is too expensive. We have to find some way to reduce the cost of raising a child in America. It's very strange to say, as a result, what we're going to do is give $10,000 to every family that happens to have a child between the ages of five and 15 today and is under $250,000. And next year, we're just going to stop the policy entirely. It's just a one-year policy. Okay, well, people are still going to have children next year and the year after that and the year after that. And in the exact same way, people are going to still go to college next year and the year after that and the year after that. And we're not doing anything with this policy for them either. I think you've actually identified a pattern since we kind of did do this, the child tax credit. I, I, <laughs> we did. Yeah, I, say, say, so with the child tax credit, we, we essentially uh, topped it off for like nine months only, for 12 months only, and then we couldn't pass extended child care. So you're, you're a child tax credit. So maybe you're entirely right. Maybe we do just keep <laughs> identifying chronic problems and applying acute one-off solutions. But um, to that point, uh, maybe just talk about the degree to which you know, this is a very contained problem, or excuse me, I should say a contained solution that really doesn't do anything for the broader issue of education financing. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the core issue of college costs being too onerous for folks. Um, and then the other core issue of are people who are graduating from college getting good enough jobs are actually quite separate from the question of people who currently have debt, how do you help those people out? But we've conflated all three conversations together, right? Like uh, forgiving student loan debt doesn't really do anything for people who are having trouble finding good jobs, uh, good paying jobs. It doesn't do anything really for people who are, um, you know, kind of scared I get sticker shock from the price of college uh, uh, um, college tuition right now, and maybe they don't go to the school that would be best for them or their labor market outcomes, or for the fact that we're not really sure in a lot of places why exactly we're seeing such ballooning college costs. There's like so many different theories out there right now, but we're not actually really sure what the diagnosis is on why that's happening. And so all of these different things are all being kind of put together under the same blanket of, quote, higher education affordability. And um, then that blanket is kind of being address on this one-off college um, uh, debt forgiveness. I mean, there's one part of this policy, of course, that we've yet to mention um, around income-driven repayment, which does try to deal with this problem in perpetuity. So income-driven repayment, basically what it tries to do is it caps the monthly payment that someone has to make on their college debt at a reasonable level of their discretionary income. And um, you know, Biden, uh, with this new plan, has said essentially that uh, it's even more generous, like even a, a smaller percentage of your discretionary income from 10% to 5% now of your discretionary income can now be um, uh, taken on um, when you're making income-driven repayment uh, payments. And so, uh, you know, th that's something that does try to address the problem in perpetuity. I mean, there are people who have pointed out some, some issues with this, but I think it is actually a, an attempt to, to, to do something about the fundamental issue of the debt burden that people have to carry on. But again, and you're right, does not address the core the core problems of, of higher education um, financing. I think you're totally right. And I'm really glad that you schooled me there in terms of bringing up the fact that the child tax credit is a perfect example of how we identify a long-term problem and apply a short-term solution. I suppose the distinction is that right now, if you look at the terms of the debate, it's the left or liberals who are saying, this is a really good policy by Joe Biden, and the right saying it's a bad policy. Whereas the child tax credit, it was the left that was saying, we need to extend the child tax credit and make it permanent because this is a permanent problem. People will keep having children and children will be too expensive given all of these certain inputs for raising a child in America today. Whereas I don't see enough as much energy right now in terms of turning this one-off solution into a chronic solution. There doesn't even seem to be that much energy in terms of getting Biden to do something uh, 
blatantly political, like announcing some kind of blue ribbon commission to say, we're going to look into the inputs in terms of why education inflation is so incredibly high. And we're going to really figure this out in a bipartisan manner and come up with all sorts of solutions that can you know, bring, pull down tuition inflation over time. It does just weirdly seem like a one-off thing. You mentioned education financing. So let's talk about that specifically. Um, as, as you said, the ten dollars to $20,000 of forgiveness is not the only part of the policy that matters. There is also the fact that student loans are now eligible for this new income-based repayment plan. Um, do you worry that the income-based repayment plan plus the ten dollars to $20,000 of student loan forgiveness are going to send a signal to colleges that say, keep raising prices we're not going to do anything about that, those tuition prices. That's the federal government. We're not going to do anything about these tuition prices, but we are going to, on the back end, give your students a bunch of money or limit the pain of holding debt. And so you can raise prices as much as you want, and we're not going to do anything about it. Do you, do you feel like it maybe sends colleges and universities that pernicious signal? Yeah, so um, policy wonk Matt Brunig um, makes this argument um, in a blog post. So folks who are interested in in the in how this will play out can can go read that. But I think um, generally, kind of the logic of this, right, is if you know going into college that all that's going to happen um, when you take out debt is that five percent of your discretionary income will be removed from your um, uh, from your uh, paycheck, paycheck every yep. month and. At the same time, too, that after 10 years, you know, it's you're not paying anymore. It's over. If you know that, it doesn't really matter to you, right? Like how much money you're taking out in debt because you're paying the same amount of money regardless. And so the concern here, right, is that which you kind of articulated here is that like because students will become more insensitive to the, the amount of money they're expected to take out in, in debt, then colleges can say, OK, I'm actually going to charge you the full amount student that I previously was giving some sort of discount to or trying to reduce tuition for. Instead, I'm going to charge you the full amount since I know the federal government's going to just give me that, uh, give you that money. And then the college can turn around and create their own kind of income-driven repayment program where they can essentially give you some of that money that the federal government gave them. And so that sounds really convoluted, but essentially what happens is that all of that money that the federal government um, has loaned out just goes straight to college coffers. And individual students are often not really paying attention to where that's happening, but it allows colleges to continuously raise tuition. And it contributes to, of course, like ballooning college um, costs. And then their beneficiaries of this essentially end up being these colleges and universities and not actually um, addressing the core problem of college costs. So I think that's like a reasonable, um, you know, there's a, there's a reasonable argument there. There are caps on how much money you can take out for student debt um, based on a variety of things, including your like your parents' income and stuff like that for federal student debt. So it's not like infinite. You can't just like take out like infinite amounts of money from the federal government. Um, and also like people do experience sticker shock with prices. We do know this from like economic research that people often don't realize that the amount of money they're paying is not usually the sticker price on college um, websites. And so like the idea that the college website would now say like $100,000 a year for tuition is not like something that colleges could just do without any sort of cost to the types of students that would be willing to come there um, and the decisions those students would make. Um, and of course, people just have a general dis like comfort with carrying large debt burdens, even if the income-driven repayment thing becomes um, um, really uh, common to use. And so I think there are a lot of reasons to think this won't be as, like, as, as insane, but I, I do think it is a real problem. And I think that one thing that I've heard is that perhaps this will force um, policymakers to really take seriously the under underlying issue of college costs uh, ballooning and the sticker prices ballooning because they'll be afraid of kind of getting ripped off by colleges and universities here. So I'm not sure how much stock I put in that, but people are saying it. So 
it's sort of, some people call this like the accelerationist argument. You make the problem of tuition so eye-bleedingly obvious that politicians have no choice but to get together and set up that blue ribbon commission and do something like price controls in college campuses. You know, I could say, the problem is already pretty eye-bleedingly obvious. We just gave $15,000 away to tens of millions of people because student debt is so terrible. But, uh, you know, I think in you did a great job explaining that policy. And I just want to be clear about what the outcome of this policy is. If the federal government is encouraged to continue to subsidize universities and colleges without any kind of price sensitivity on the part of students, what it means fundamentally, especially in a high inflation and high interest rate environment, is that you have taxpayers funding governments to pay universities to hire more administrators. Now, look, I am not against college administrators. I think college administrators can be absolutely essential and do some wonderful jobs. But the way this system is going to work out, the way it's going to cash out, if the worst happens, if these incentives are followed to their logical conclusion, is that more tax dollars are going to the federal government to hire more and more and more college bureaucrats. And that just doesn't seem to me like the absolute best use of money in a world where we have very serious problems and where we are somewhat constrained because interest rates are much higher today and will continue to be higher than they were for much of the 2000s and the 2010s. This is not a world without trade-offs anymore. So let's actually go to the economic question here. Um, there's a consumer economic argument that says that student debt and student loans have for many, many years been holding back the US economy, that it's kept people from buying houses, it's kept people from buying cars, it's kept people from taking the job that they really want because they were taking the job that was paying them the most money rather than the one that was the best expression of their skills. Um, how do you feel narrowly about the argument that relieving student debt could unleash the consumer economy in these ways and in particular help the cause of housing affordability? Yeah, I mean, this is something that gets cited a lot around how um, uh, canceling student loan debt could boost home ownership. Um, and on, on the margins, right, like it makes a lot of sense, the argument, right? Like this is a group of people that likely has um, reasonably high income jobs. Like one of the things that might be holding them back from getting a mortgage is that they have this high debt burden um, that they have to service. And of course, just in general, like you give people money, they have more money, they'll spend it on other things. And therefore, one of the things they might spend it on includes a house. And so, um, you know, that's an argument for like just giving people money and like maybe they would increase uh, their their home ownership rate. We, we, we would increase the U.S.'s home ownership rate. But I think there are a couple things weird about this. Like one, like the problem with the housing market right now is not an insufficient amount of demand. I mean, at least in general, like not talking specifically right now, but like in general, the issue is not that like people, um, there aren't a lot of people who are trying to buy homes. Um, the issue is, as we talked about on this podcast before, Derek, it's a supply side problem. Um, it's an issue of how much housing availability there is where people need it and that the type of housing that's available actually means their needs. Um, are there, you know, smaller single family homes? Are there, um, you know, homes that have, you know, enough bedrooms for their kids in near jobs that they need to, to work in? So like, this is, this is the real problem with, um, housing affordability. And there's some evidence that in, if you don't actually deal with that, just increasing the demand, um, it does increase potentially the homeownership rate, but it also could raise prices because you are increasing demand for a good while the number of goods is actually pretty stagnant. So um, that's kind of a problem there too. But I think like most broadly here, like I don't know which way this plays out, like perhaps it increases the homeownership rate um, uh, some, some small amount. But th I think the question here is just, 
is this the policy that someone would pursue if they were actually concerned about whether or not people were able to afford homes, um, if they were concerned about whether people were able to buy um, the kinds of goods they wanted, whether it's housing or something else? Um, I, I think the answer there is like transparently no. Like this is one of those arguments that's like come about because um, you know someone was able to run some sort of study and found that there was like some small increase in homeownership among people who um, did not carry student loan debt and people who did carry student loan debt, and so. Um, it is not the case at all that if you talk to like housing economists or housing policymakers that on the top 10 list of things that they want to have happen in order to increase the homeownership rate, that student loan debt makes an appearance. So I think that's one of the one of the weirdest uh, arguments I, I hear a lot. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This leads to the question about inflation. There was a huge, huge debate among centrist and conservative and liberal economists about whether or not this policy would increase inflation at a time when we are clearly trying to pull inflation down. So on the one hand, there are people who say that there's already a student loan moratorium. So this doesn't radically change the status quo. There are tens of millions of people that aren't paying interest on their student loans and have not been since March 2020. And they will simply continue to not pay as much on their student loans after this amount is forgiven. And I suppose that in a few months, that moratorium is going to end. Um, on the other hand, I've been really su I've been surprised by the number of liberals who reject the idea entirely that this will affect inflation. Because right now you have the Federal Reserve very busy trying to depress the purchasing power of Americans. But it seems to me, and tell me if you think this is wrong, but it seems to me that one of the reasons to forgive student loans is to raise the purchasing power of student debtors. So why do we think that raising the purchasing power of tens of millions of people 
won't raise the overall purchasing power of Americans at a time we're trying to destroy demand rather than create it. So I don't think it's catastrophic. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh my God, we're pouring gasoline on the fire of hyperinflation in America. Like this is the path to Weimar. Not that at all. Not that at all. But like at the margin, I don't understand how this would reduce inflation. And so it seems very likely to me to at least buffer a little bit the inflationary winds that we're trying to cool. Yeah, so I've done a few arguments made by um, the pro-student debt cancellation folks. I think it's one of those anti-student cancellation arguments that's also quite bizarre that there's so much energy on it. Because I agree that, like, you know... I, the, the net effect of this has to be so marginal, even though the, the claims that people are making on the side of um, this will increase inflation are just like very, very small. And the reason is because this is not a policy where people are being handed like $10,000 or $20,000. What's happening is that people are getting no lo- like a bill is disappearing in the future. Imagine if someone said like your cell phone bill is disappearing for the future. Like, yes, maybe you feel like $75, $100 like richer each month. But like for the population of people that we're talking about here, that's not something where all of a sudden like, you know, your behavior might is going to change drastically and you're going to be buying a bunch of stuff like right now, like heading to your Amazon and and, and clearing out your shopping cart immediately. I mean, this is the kind of thing where it's not really clear to me how people end up fully behaving. Um, obviously, they do have their, on the margins, their purchasing power is increased. So like you, we would expect potentially that they would uh, maybe uh, uh, increase more, but also there's a population whose marginal propensity to consume like um, is lower than average. And by that, I mean like the marginal dollar that a population gets when it's relatively high income, they are more likely to save it than spend it when compared to people who are poor, obviously, because if you're poor, you have a bunch of needs that are not being met currently. Um, but for this population, a lot of the arguments that the anti-student debt cancellation crowd has made is that this is not a population that really needs the money. And that indicates to me that this is also not a population that's going to like go out and need to spend a bunch of money right away either. Um, and I, you know, so, and I, and also at the same time, like, I think that it makes sense that given that this population has had, um, you know, uh, a, a, a moratorium on payments for a long time, they've kind of normalized to the level of income that includes not paying their student debt off. So like, you know, maybe sure this does some little bit on inflation, but if, as, as many people have, have talked about for the last uh, year or whatever, um, the, the focus on inflation is not going to be whether or not like student debt, um, gets canceled or not. It's going to be on a lot of other factors that have to do with supply chains that have to do with Fed policy that have to do with other fiscally expansionary contractionary policies. Like it's just not to me like something that we should be focusing on. And the fact that it's gotten so much airtime is, is bizarre. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel I feel like you're, you're disagreeing with me in actually a really really smart way. I mean, I try to I try to like put both arguments that I'm hearing uh, on the table that uh, the student loan moratorium is already happening and this doesn't really change the status quo that much. So why would it have a huge inflationary um, effect? But I do think that you're right that thinking about this as a cash transfer is is a little bit strange because it's like a, it's a it's almost like an amortized cash transfer into the future, right? It's like saying to someone, um, you're not going to have to pay your mortgage for 12 months, 12 years from now, right? It's like, if I, it's like giving someone a bunch of money that's not actually going to make contact with their lives necessarily for many years. And that as a result is very likely to affect consumer demand in the next month. I think you're, I think you're probably right that that's the right way to think about it. And behavioral economists out there, if you if you guys are are take issue with what I've just said because there's some research, please please reach out. <laughs> no, I, I no, I, th- I think you're totally right. I mean, I I I I, we, I follow a lot of uh, economists who have been analyzing the inflationary effects of this policy, um, and you know the the argument that sat best with me was this idea that look, um, a lot of people were arguing 
in 2021 that on the margin, one reason to support student loan uh, forgiveness was that we needed a little bit, a bit of a kick in the butt in terms of demand. And so this couldn't hurt. Not only is it helping people who've been overly burdened by bad federal education policy, but also we could always use a little bit more demand. But right now we're in a situation where we clearly could not necessarily use a little bit more demand. In fact, we're actively trying to destroy it. And so shouldn't the argument flip? But what you're saying, and actually I, 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 I'm actually changing my opinion here. I think you're right. What you're saying is um, that argument might've been wrong from the beginning. It might've been wrong from the beginning that, that this policy was gonna have almost any effect on sort of month to month, immediate month to month demand. I think that's probably true. All right, let's go into politics um, because the political dimension of this, I think is very interesting. I first wanna talk about this from the perspective of democratic, capital D democratic politics. So on the one hand, only 13% of the country currently carries federal student debt. On the other hand, that 13%, is about 40 million Americans who are disproportionately college educated, like almost by definition, this is, these are student loans, and therefore leaning Democratic because college educated Americans have been listing toward the Democratic Party for the last few years. There's a midterm election a couple of months from now, and uh, these 40 million Americans who are overall leaning Democratic have just gotten uh, billions and billions of dollars going forward over the next few years. Um, what else should we be thinking about when considering this sort of political strategy behind this policy? Yeah, I think this is actually the most interesting part of the debate because I think that um, often people are discussing policies. They're just like, is this good or bad? Thumbs up, thumbs down. And there's not a lot of discussion about agenda setting and how it happens. Like, how is this policy something that we're talking about? Why has it gotten to the fore when there's, you know, ostensibly there's a million different policies that could have garnered this much attention? How did this get this much purchase? Um, I think is is really interesting. I think largely, of course, um, you know, it has to do with the growing power of college education voters. Um, it's not just something within the Democratic Party, but it is largely within the Democratic Party that we're seeing college education explain a lot of, of who chooses to vote for Democrats. Um, and, you know, there's even been explicit stuff. I've, I've seen like a, a, you know, Democratic Party com communications staffer tweet, like, of course, this is, we're giving money to our base. So it's just one of those things like, okay, like clearly, and like, you know, that doesn't have to be bad. Like people want to reward voters who vote for them. Like, that's what you do when you get into office. People vote for you into office and then you um, provide them the, the services and the policies that they ask you to provide. And that's not necessarily bad. I think it just helps explain it. The second thing, of course, is that um, you know, the Great Recession, I think, was a unique phenomenon, right? And it's really become like a really big um, political sticking point for people, which is that, you know, if you graduated college during the Great Recession, like you just got the worst luck imaginable. I mean, it was a really bad time to be joining the um, workforce. This group of people is now kind of in their prime entering in their prime, like home buying years is a group of people that's, uh, you know, older millennials who have a lot more voting power now and are a lot more relevant to um, Democratic Party politics interests than, than before when they were much younger. I mean, this is the group that was, you know, ignored during Occupy Wall Street. That's where they are now. Now they're much older. Now they're now they're um, really relevant to the interests of the Democratic Party. And I think that like the question of like how this plays out is really hard to tell. I think you see a lot of polls that indicate that people are in favor of this move by Joe Biden, especially younger folks are in favor of this move by Joe Biden. Um, I, I think that it's it's really hard to tell because often when people get asked questions, um, they interpret them kind of broadly. And I think that the one way is that, you know, people hear like, oh, should student debt be forgiven? And they vaguely kind of hear like, shouldn't college be affordable for people? Like, shouldn't the American dream be accessible to individuals? And also often a lot of these polls don't actually explain the con arguments. You can get a majority on basically anything to say it if you don't explain to them the reverse harm of that policy policy. Um, 
And so I do think this is like probably net popular. I don't think it's like massively popular or anything like that, but I think it's probably net popular amongst um, a group of people that is the Democratic Party's base. Um, but I also think that, you know, I, I think that people are tend to really blow off the unfairness argument because they don't think it has merit. And I'm not someone who thinks we should evaluate uh, policies based on whether someone in the past did not have access to that benefit or not. But I think generally people get kind of mad when like, you know, something that seems uh, like they worked really hard to avoid, whether or not it's true that it's based on hard work, but they feel like it's, they worked hard to avoid it is now being given to someone else. Um, I think that's just something that's kind of like a fact about human nature. I think there are probably a good amount of people who who get annoyed by stuff like that. But I guess, the, but the fundamental question at the end of the day is like, are people voting on student debt relief? You know, are they voting on this question of whether or not Joe Biden forgave ten or $20,000 of student debt? All of the evidence uh, indicates that stuff around the economy and um, increasingly abortion are things that are driving a lot of what's going on in, within the electorate coming up in the midterms. Um, it does not really uh, make sense to me that this would be a, a big factor, but I think the smartest argument in favor of Joe Biden doing this from a political perspective has been the idea that, um, you know, it helps this general sense that Joe Biden's getting stuff done. We have passed Build Back Better. We have infrastructure funding. We have now uh, a promise that he made on the campaign trail to forgive some student debt. I mean, these are things where you kind of have a general sense that like, this is a president who's acting in a way um, that is in favor of my coalition, even if the specific policy itself is not super relevant. There's one more piece of politics that is really interesting to me, which is the way that this policy was created. This is not a law. This is not a piece of legislation. This is a decision by the executive branch. And building wealth for low-income Americans, bringing down the cost of education, which is the biggest goal here, that is complicated. That is a long, long process. On the other hand, canceling student loan debt is a pretty easy change. It's a pretty easy thing to do. And so Biden could do it. But I, I wonder if it seems easy now, but it won't actually be easy to be operationalized because the courts might strike it down. Something like this hasn't really been tried before. So what is your outlook for the degree to which this policy even survives the next few months of legal challenges? Yeah. So one of the um, big arguments for why it was important to focus on this policy was that, um, you know, uh, Ayanna Presley said that it would it would take just a stroke of a pen to get it done. This is not something that has to go through Congress. It can be done by the executive. Um, the legal theory that this comes from is from a, um, I believe it's a Yale Law graduate um, who co-founded the Debt Collective, which is a um, nonprofit fighting to reduce debt burdens, um, student debt, but also medical debt, other stuff like that. And basically, it's like an argument that gets made up in 2017. And I mean, I don't say made up in like a pejorative sense. I mean, like legal theory that gets developed and is, is, is quite novel at, at, uh, in 2017 um, by this uh, by this person at the Debt Collective. And, um, you know, it's not been tested in any way, right? There's been some counter arguments by lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not really qualified to evaluate the validity of these things. But there are quite a few law professors who are very skeptical that this is something that will be upheld by the courts, especially now that we have a very conservative Supreme Court that doesn't seem um, particularly interested in, in granting the executive branch a ton of power to be innovative. I mean, we've seen recent rulings and just other um, you know comments they've made in dicta that indicate that they are really suspect of, 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 of the federal government kind of following the sort of um, legislating process, whereas there's like a really broad power granted to the federal government by Congress. And then, you know, agents can kind of just go in and like do a bunch of policy making that they feel should be left up to Congress. Um, 
uh, that the Supreme Court feels that should be left up to Congress. And so I think that it's one of those things where um, I, it's not clear what happens. It's a really novel place. But I mean, I don't think Democrats are in a, in a really good position with the courts um, to to bank on uh, that they're going to allow them to do this kind of novel um, um, uh, behavior. Uh, I think it is hard because, you know, at the same time, the court has allowed tons of debt to get effectively canceled by pausing the by, by pausing the um, uh, by allowing President Donald Trump and uh, um uh, Joe Biden as well to pause the student debt payments. Um, that hasn't been challenged. And I think one of the really big questions here is like, who even has standing to challenge whether or not, um, the courts can, uh, whether or not, uh, the, the executive branch can cancel student debt. So there's a lot of really weird legal things going on right now. It's not really clear how it's going to shake out. Um, if it does end up going to the Supreme Court, I am not very optimistic this stands. Um, but yeah. So we've talked about this policy from a bunch of different angles. We've talked about its economic effects. We've talked about its morality. We've talked about its effect on the future of education financing. And we've talked about its political dimension. I want to close by giving you the stage to tell me what you think the best case for this policy is and what the best case against this policy is. The best argument for it is that like the government can do something easily and quickly to alleviate a financial burden on a population of people, many of whom would be very helped by that. Um, I think the case against is that there's a there's a million things that you can be doing and that the government can be doing to help people. And I am very skeptical about the amount of time and attention that has been taken up by this policy. And um, a lot of the arguments in response to my skepticism have been kind of just like, oh, but it's it's so easy to do. It's a stroke of a pen, um, and that kind of ignores that. The reason why there is even this novel legal theory that allows the federal government to consider debt cancellation is because a ton of time and energy and attention were given to this issue to begin with. And so I think... I, throughout this podcast, I sound like pretty ambivalent about this, and that's because I am pretty ambivalent about this. Um, I'm pretty ambivalent because I don't think that this is something where if I were to order my top 100 policies for the federal government to spend time on, that this would place anywhere in there. And I think that's also true for a majority of Americans. Um, you know, I talk to... Um, Gallup earlier this year, and they asked this question about, you know, um, what is the most important problem facing the nation? And, uh, you know, this pollster told me that they're unable to report uh, the percentage of Americans who have mentioned student debt or cancellation because it hasn't garnered enough mentions to do so. And that in four polls that this guy had conducted um, in the last year, in 2022, where this is already a hot button issue, um, only one respondent has ever mentioned this as the most important problem facing the nation. And now the government does a bunch of stuff that is not the most important problem. I'm not trying to say that this is something where the government should act completely um, in a, you know, ordin <laughs> create a create an order list of all of the all of the policies that matter. But I do think that we should be skeptical in general about the agenda setting power that we as college graduates have, and whether we're using that to to, to benefit um, the progressive policy we say are really important, or if we're doing it, um, you know, just fully out of self-interest, which, you know, that seems to be what's going on here. Jerusalem Demsis, you could read her at The Atlantic. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Derek Thompson. That was Plain English. Thanks very much to our producer, Devin Manzi. If you have any questions, comments, ideas for future episodes, please shoot us an email at plainenglish at spotify.com. That's plain, no space, English at spotify.com. And don't forget to check out our new, beautiful TikTok page. You can find us at at plain English underscore. Yes, that's at plain English underscore. And we'll see you on the TikToks. Thanks very much. 